Greetings, this is a reading of the book The Airship Golden Hind. Some of the language in this book has not aged well and is indeed no longer politically correct. Take caution when listening to this visual audiobook. Voyage and photography are provided by Fortations. At Fortations, we believe that the world would be a better place if people spent their time being creative join us in practicing art so we all can be the master of art. Find art prints available at our store www.fortationstore.com. Keep our artwork alive by making a donation at fortationsdonations.com. The Airship Golden Hind by Bercy F. Westerman Chapter 4 The Departure Will next Monday suit you fellows to take on officially? Inquired Foster Dick as the chums prepared to depart. I want a trial flight on that day, and if it proves satisfactory, I'll make a formal entry at once. M. Chalice stipulates that all entries must reach him in writing by noon on the 13th. That leaves us with only eight days clear. Monday. Is Sir replied Kenyon. Promptly, we'll have everything fixed up as far as our private business is concerned before then. In fact, we could arrange to join earlier, couldn't we, Peter? Peter Bramston signified his agreement. Hardly necessary, observed Foster Deck, but if anything unforeseen transpires before then, I'll why you. During the next few days, there was much to be done in scoring up the motor transport work. Notices were issued stating that the principals, Messrs. Canyon and Bramsden, would be away for six weeks, during which time all orders could be safely entrusted to their works manager. Even that individual had no inkling of the nature of his employer's forthcoming absence the secret jealously guarded had not yet leaked out. On the other hand, the press published a report of M. Chavez's offer and stated that three entries other than British had been received. The lack of enterprise on the part of British airmen was commented upon and an appeal issued to sportsmen to make an effort to prevent yet another record passing into the hands of foreigners. On the day following, this journalistic Jeremiah came the report that a British airship of unique design was approaching completion at a private aerodrome near Blyford, and that the Air Ministry had given instructions for all facilities to be afforded to its crew in their attempt to circumnavigate the globe within a space of twenty days. Details, both erroneous and exaggerated were given of the mysterious airship together with plans that were as unlike those of the Golden Hind as those of a modern dreadnought would be compared with those of Drake's famous ship that will rattle the old man, declared Kenyon, when he read the announcement. It did Foster Dyke sent a wire asking his two assistants to join him at once. That was on the Friday morning at 2.30 p.m. 
or in Air Force Phraseology 1430 Kenyon and Bremsden arrived at Air Grange to find a vast concourse of would-be spectators congregated round the gates, decking up the efforts of a knot of persistent pressmen who cajoled, bluffed, and argued all in vain with the imperturbable Hayward and four hefty satellites. The grassy slopes outside the formidable fence resembled Epsom Downs on Derby Day. Momentarily motor cars were arriving, while at frequent intervals heavily laden char a bank rumpled up and discharged their human cargo motor bicycles, push bikes, traps, and carts added to the congestion. Thousands of people arrived on foot from where goodness only knows hawkers and itinerant purveyors displayed their wares. Photographers, both amateur and professional, elbowed their way towards the forbidden ground while three brass bands and at least a dozen individual musicians added to the din. On the outskirts, temporary platforms had been erected while hires of telescopes, field and opera glasses did a roaring trade. People willingly paying to gaze at the impenetrable barrier of four trees in the vain hope of catching a glimpse of the mysterious airship. It took Kenyon and Bramston the best part of an hour to literally force their way through the throng by dint of shouting gangway. Please, they continued to make a certain amount of progress until their arrival, coupled with the ex-sergeant's efforts to make the crowd stand aside attracted the attention of the representatives of the press. For five minutes, the latter bombarded the chums with questions, getting inconsequent replies that put their reporters on their mettle. If we aren't allowed in, we'll take jolly good care you won't be, shouted one of the press representatives, evidently mistaking Peter and Kenneth for favored spectators. There was a rush towards the gates. The half a dozen policemen assisting Hayward and his men were almost swept off their feet. Things looked serious. If Kenyon and his companion succeeded in getting past the gate, it would only be in the midst of an excited mob. Just then, Sir Reginald Fosterdeck appeared. Some of the local inhabitants recognized him and the report of his identity quickly spread. So, when he raised his hand to enjoin silence, the crowd surging around the gate ceased its clamor. By preventing my navigating officers, you only defer your own ends, he exclaimed in ringing tones, the airship is not yet ready for flight, nor is she open to inspection. A trial flight has been fixed for Monday next on that day, the aerodrome will be thrown open to public inspection. And he added, with a disarming smile, there will be no charge for admission. Almost instantly, the demeanor of the crowd changed their work calls for cheers for Sir Reginald Foster Dyke. Someone started singing, for he's a jolly good fellow. The baronet turned and hurried away, precipitately publicity he hated. Kenneth and Peter, taking advantage of this diversion, slipped inside the barrier and found Foster Deck awaiting them beyond the bend of the carriage drive. 
good old British public, he exclaimed by Jove. They put the wind up. Me, I thought that they would be swarming like locusts over the golden hind. We'll have to circumvent them. Only last night some of the crew found a fellow prowling round the shed. Goodness, only knows what, for he pitched some sort of yarn. And since we aren't under the defense of the Rome Act, I couldn't detain him. But this crowd scares me will get out tonight, even if we have to drift, and they can have the run of the place on Monday, as I promised. But I said nothing about the airship being here, or otherwise where's your kit? Somewhere between here and Blandford Railway Station, replied Peter. We saw we'd have our work cut out to force our way through. So we told the taxi driver to take it back to the station. It isn't the first time we've parted with our kit. Kenneth, I'll send for it when the crowd thins, decided Sir Reginald. Now I suppose you're wondering why I telegraphed for you. This warm outside offers a solution, said Kenyon. To a certain extent, yes, agreed Foster Dyke, apart from that. There's a reliable report that Captain Theodore Knight of the United States Army is starting from Tampa, Florida, tomorrow in one of the large airships of the R-type that the Air Ministry sold to America recently. That forces our hand will have to be at the starting point minus 1,100 miles away by tomorrow midday so as to replenish petrol and commence the competition. Flights go for May night. And how about the budge, sir? Count Carl von Sinzig. Not a word, he's apparently out of it. Not even one of the also rands are formidable rivals are the Yankee and Igtak, a Count Hiyashi who will reach his neighbor somewhere in your quiet. Let am all come the more the merrier. All hands, including the workmen, and mechanics who were not participating in the voyage, assembled in the large dining hall for an impromptu farewell dinner, and to them the baronet broached the subject of the hurried departure of the Golden Hind. The meal over, the task of getting the huge airship out of her shed began even though the wind was light, the work was by no means simple. Incautious handling or a sudden change in the direction of the air currents might easily result in disaster. The operation had to be carried out after sunset and with the minimum of artificial light, since, for the present, the Golden Hind's departure was to be kept secret. With her balance charged sufficiently to give her a slight lift, the airship rose until the base of the fuselage was a bare three feet from the ground. The crew were at their stations, Kenyon assisting Foster Deck in the wheelhouse, while right aft Peter Branson directed the movements of the ground, men holding the stern, securing and trailing ropes, inch by inch, foot by foot, till the Leviathan of the air emerged from the shed until her entire length, straining gently at the rope that tethered her to Mother Earth, lay exposed to the starlit sky. All clear, Sir reported Bremston through a speaking tube. 
occurred, five precise orders rain out from the navigation room. The slightest of the brodium being released from the metal cylinders was barely audible above the sign of the wind in the pine tops until the gauges registering the lift of the airship indicated 38 tons. Armed with a megaphone, Foster Dyke leaned out of the window of the navigation room. All ready. Let go. Simultaneously, the 20 men holding the airship released their hold. That was where training and discipline told. For terrible to contemplate would have been the fate of an unwary ground man had he retained his grip on the rope. But without an accident to mark the momentous event, the golden hind shot almost vertically into the air, attained in a very short space of time an altitude of 6,000 feet. Not a chair rang out to speed the departing competitor for the stupendous contest on her and unseen save by the loyal band of helpers at the aerodrome. Sir Reginald Foster Dyke's airship was on her way to the starting point of her voyage round the globe.